Welcome to Inspiring Doctors, a podcast series brought to you by the British Medical Association. I'm Martin McKee, a Professor of Public Health and the President of the BMA. In this series, I'm joined by people who I see as role models. They've successfully taken their medical knowledge to a wider audience in creative ways. So what inspired their work? What lessons have they learned? And what advice do they have for young doctors who may want to follow in their footsteps? There is something magical about the confluence of medicine and communication. My interviewees are only some of the role models who do this work, but they're all people who have inspired me. I hope that our conversations will, in turn, inspire you. My guest today is Dom Pimenta. Dom qualified from University College London in 2012, and he undertook his initial training in cardiology. He then worked in an intensive care unit during the COVID pandemic. But when news broke of Dominic Cummings' visit to Durham, contrary to the prevailing rules, he threatened to resign if Cummings did not. Reluctantly, he kept his word. Some years earlier, he established JuniorDoctorBlog.com, which combined a diary of his experiences on the wards with incisive opinion about the broader political context within which the NHS was situated. After he resigned, he put his experiences during the pandemic down on paper in the book Duty of Care, which captures the fear and apprehension the tears and exhaustion, but also the generosity and kindness that characterised life on the front line. He donated the royalty to the charity the Healthcare Workers Foundation, which he had established to support health workers during the pandemic. Welcome, Dom. Thanks so much for having me. Many people were working hard during the pandemic, but you really stand out among them. You were a junior doctor working long and stressful hours in hot and uncomfortable PPE. But then you set up a charity that raised over a million pounds to source equipment for the NHS. And you wrote a book. What motivates you? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think actually in retrospect, I diagnosed myself with um, high functioning anxiety. So I don't know if you remember, like very early on, uh, sort of February or March, there was this sort of, I think I described it in the book actually, it's like a, a collective indrawn breath of all medical professionals. Everyone was like holding their breath going, what's going to happen? How bad is this going to be? And for me, and I think for a lot of people, we stopped sleeping. uh, And this sort of like, I've never really experienced such a tide of anxiety amongst a single group. It was very, very obvious. And Twitter, I think, amplified that quite significantly. So for me, doing things was my, and actually in retrospect, has always been my way of dealing with anxiety. Um, And that's why there's this concept of high-functioning anxiety where people tend to do like a lot of different things. So during the lead up to the pandemic, we were very, very concerned that this was going to be, you know, a sort of disaster in the making. And it, it seemed in retrospect quite obvious and at the time wasn't obvious at all um, and became very vocal on social media and eventually very vocal on the actual media to try to sort of do something. And I think the the doing something was sort of my way of, of dealing with that anxiety. So I wouldn't say motivation as much as sort of, you know, uh, sort of self-treatment, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's probably where I ended up like doing probably way too much, uh, burning myself out a bit as well. Well, we'll come back to the role of writing as therapy later. But your book, Duty of Care, wasn't your first experience in writing for a wider audience. How did you start writing? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. I was trying to think back to when I first started writing. What was the first thing I wrote? And like, so writing for me began before I could really remember at school. Uh, the first thing I really wrote and was really proud of, and it's really funny this came into my mind, was when I was in year five, I wrote a book about ants. <laughs> and I remember it really specific because I spent hours drawing these ants in like different outfits and doing different things. And I remember thinking, wow, I really like creating things. I was showing people, I wish I still had that. And then all through sort of primary school, secondary school, I did loads of writing. We used to have, um, I can't remember what it's called now. It's called Nightlife. Um, and it was literally like, you know, you would submit your poems and your stories. I used to write prolifically just for that. And then actually I did English Lit as my one of my A-levels. Um, and again, that was quite controversial because I was going into medicine. So I had chemistry and biology and they were like, obviously you should do physics and maths. And I was like, no, thank you. I'm going to do English Lit to show media studies. And I think narratives and language has always been something that it, it sort of spoke to me in how I understood everything. And that included lots of the science and lots of the biology as well. And I think medicine is a really good example where actually it's a science on paper, but in practice it's a language. Um, and I think that's been something that I've sort of gravitated towards. And we often do talk about the science and art of medicine. I've really been struck by the people that I am interviewing in this series, the amount of creativity that I'm finding. It's, it's absolutely incredible and very inspiring, which of course is the, the theme of this series. You describe really graphically the horror of being on the front line during the pandemic, the stress that everybody was under, the challenges that you all faced. In the light of all of that, what policies would you like to see implemented to support the well-being and the mental health of doctors? What does the government need to do in the light of your experience? Mm -hmm. And obviously that's something that I've dedicated a long part of my last couple of years to, obviously founding the charity as well, which is that is the, you know, the fundamental mission of the Healthcare Workers Foundation is to support um, the mental and physical well-being of doctors. I suppose the difficulty, you know, the government has and everybody has really is it's really hard to acknowledge how inhumane a job it can be. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're inundated with a lot of paperwork, a lot of administrative burden, which is a big part of what I do now, trying to alleviate. And right mixed alongside that are what I call uh, life events with a capital L, like constantly life-changing illness, cardiac arrests, deaths, exposed all the time. And we don't really do enough to acknowledge that that mix is very, very toxic. Like in the one hand, you have a lot of meaningless work which you are still required to do and often get into, you know, ridiculous bureaucratic fights with managers and consultants and, you know, your ARCP. And mixed right inside that is genuine moral injury. You know, you have events. I can still count on the top of my head moments in time which have sort of scarred into my, you know, emotional retina, shall we say. And there were a few times when I thought, wow, I was never prepared to do something like this. I'll give you a really good example. I used to do, uh, I was a pediatric SHO in Oxford as an F2 and for most part, the job was very algorithmic. Even the cardiac arrest, which we had quite a few because it was a specialist tertiary center, um, were, you know, algorithmic. You do the algorithm, you follow what you need to follow, and, and you just deal with it. And like we all do as doctors, you know, you get used to that mentality of just getting on with the job. But the bit, you know, I attended a cardiac arrest of a child, a baby now, and it's actually hard for me to talk about this. Now I've got three kids myself, so, you know, the pain is like twice as much. But the parents were there, and, you know, when we, we couldn't resuscitate the child, their grief was un you know untenable for everyone in the room like we had no training to deal with this you know and i think there were moments like that which i think wow i mean this is a daily occurrence for everybody here right that is life with a capital l 
And I think there's just a real disregard for, there just isn't enough support around those events in and of themselves, but also the fact that everybody in that room then had to go and, you know, fill in meaningless paperwork and forms and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I think if we could just get back to try to focus on the humanity of a job, which fundamentally people join because they are very much, you know, gravitate towards people, like they want to work with human beings. Um, and I think that's something that we just don't see enough and acknowledging like all of the constant push to do more or in fact to appear to do more, which I think is the other thing that people really find really galling, like just fill in this extra form or just fill in this extra bit of paperwork. It all adds up. And even just acknowledging that that is not a good way to treat people in what is already a very difficult system, I think would be the start of a better conversation, but we haven't quite got there yet. But it is remarkable how one can still remember the patients that one may have treated. And in my case, many years ago, mm. I can still see those individual patients when things were really often quite awful situations. You were struggling to do what you could with limited resources. And of course, that is the moral injury that you're talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. You know what you need to do, but you're not able to do it. You've already mentioned your A-levels and some populist politicians dismiss certain subjects as little value. I remember one who questioned why anyone would be studying medieval history only for the tourist industry to point out that hundreds of thousands of people come to the UK to soak up the medieval history that resides within the walls of so many of our leading tourist attractions. Now, media studies, which you did at A-level, is also a target for them alongside the biology and chemistry that many of us in medicine do. How did that experience help you with what you're doing now, both in your media work, but also in medicine? Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually do that much media work anymore, but like, it's so interesting, isn't it? You know, the number one cause of uh, complaints in medicine is communication. We all know this, you know, we've seen this, like good doctors, good communicators, bad doctors, good communicators. And it's only, you only get the complaints from the people that can't communicate. And media studies, for me, taught me a whole new world of how to look at what we consume visually, but the medium of communication itself, how you present something visually, how you present something from an audio perspective, and like really trying to empathize with the person that's receiving whatever you're trying to give them is such a core skill. And it's something that I've revisited over and over again, certainly like trying to communicate to wider audiences, which is obviously more sort of my and, you know, your personal belief in terms of how we communicate public health issues, such a vital skill to have. And it's funny because like, if I look back at my A-levels in the round, the skills that I used more are certainly going to be things that I remember from media studies and from English literature, as opposed to actually the fundamentals of biology and chemistry. And we know that's the case, right? We go and learn a whole new corpus of knowledge anyway, which is called medicine. And then we practice it in clinical language, which is clinical medicine. So we're so far abstracted, but the core, you know, the core skills of communication, effective writing, how you present yourself, actually they probably have stood the test of time even better than I would have said the other eight levels. So. Definitely investment worth doing. So does writing come easily to you? I write a lot as well, and I find it therapeutic, especially when I'm writing about some of the more bizarre aspects of government policy. But other people find it a chore. They're drafting and scoring out and redrafting constantly. So where are you in that spectrum? Does it come out fluently, or do you have lots of drafts that you're constantly changing? Mm, I would I would liken it to you know to any muscle memory. I think there's been times in my life where I would write prolifically. I mean, a really terrible example of that is I wrote <laughs> a six thousand word treatise on the junior doctor's contract like eight years ago. You know, version you know round one as it were um, on my honeymoon. 
And my wife was obviously not happy with that at all. Um, and then there's been times in my life and more recently where I've barely written anything at all. I've been too busy doing other things with children and new jobs and new companies. And then sitting down at that point is very hard to get, to find the edge, you know, of what you want to write. I suppose it's a, it's just practice really. And I think there's a lot to be said for staying in constant practice for constantly, you know, writing little bits often from a reflective point of view or from a planning point of view or strategy point of view, because that keeps that muscle constantly going. I do find it a good way to create clarity with what I'm doing at any given moment. And like my current job is a lot of pitching. So I tend to write like pitches of various stories. And again, going back to those skills about what is the narrative of what I'm doing at the moment. And that in many ways is very grounding. It's very cathartic because it kind of gives you a sort of uh, that holistic sense that your life does make sense in some sort of meaningful way. And again, that's, you know, all, all narrative. But I'd say, like, if anyone finds it hard, it's just little and often just like any exercise, really. Now, I want to take you back to the beginning of the pandemic. And in fact, before cases in hospital even started to rise. And you wrote at that time, I quote, this isn't medicine, it's firefighting. So how well prepared do you think the NHS was for the pandemic? Oh, like, not at all. Um, And that was basically my first red flag to hear a lot of ministers say that, you know, we were ready for COVID, right? And remember, this was the prevailing narrative in January and February. Oh, no worries. We're ready. We're ready. And the irony of that statement is that we weren't ready for the cases that we had of just general emergencies at that moment. You know, from 2015, even to today, in fact, it's continued. The sort of nadir of what we see in waiting lists and the performance of the NHS has dropped year on year on year. Every year has been worse than the last. Like that has been a significant trend. To the point that, you know, waiting this was starting to be scrapped and, you know, you're seeing on the front line, you know, I did a terrible uh, winter just before COVID as a registrar in lots of hospitals, just seeing this absolute, you know, ambulances stocked up outside, snowing, falling on them, many hour waits. And again, we're still seeing that today. So the idea that we had spare capacity to flex was not ever going to be the case. And it was always going to have to be that some other part of the system would have to give. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Electives had to give and there was a whole bunch of other stuff that got pushed down. And we're still recovering or not, as the case may be, as a consequence. But I suppose it's, again, you know, this rhetoric versus reality. If you constantly put yourself in a position where you say, no, the NHS is fine, the NHS is fine, consistently performing worse, and you're constantly degrading the resources you have, when you find a black swan event like this, you're obviously unprepared. And that's, you know, every metric pointed to that. It wasn't a really controversial statement. So right back in those days, like many of us, you were looking at what was happening in Italy. You were really concerned, but not all of your colleagues were. And you described how many of them and, and some of your relatives dismissed your concern, saying that we should trust those who were in charge. But yet this was in a country where at least it seemed to some of us, politicians had done very little to earn our trust and, in fact, the opposite. So what do you think was it that made your colleagues, your relatives, trust in the authorities when you didn't? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like there's two parts to that question, I suppose. Why do why did my colleagues at that time and you know even today uh, trust or at least don't scrutinise a lot of what is possibly not you know standing up to scrutiny? And the secondary is like, why don't I? I think the first part is you know, simply people at the time had this like extraordinary cognitive dissonance. Like your choices are you're about to enter, especially as a medical professional, a life changing moment where, you know, even in those days, we had no idea of how bad things were going to be. You know, there were some reports that it was like a five to 10% mortality, you know, 
Um, and if you were on social media, you know, it wasn't just a question of like hearing these stories. You could physically see, you could see the wards in Italy where, you know, you had pathologists running ventilators like this was fact, right? So there was degrees of separation maybe for me that, you know, there were much wider degrees away from people not on social media that could willfully ignore these, these problems. And I think the second part for me is like, you know, I grew up uh, a half Indian in a very white part of the world on the South coast. So like the logic of, you know, this group thing called the tribe, that was never actually part of my upbringing. Like whatever the tribe were thinking, I wasn't part of the tribe. I was always like, not, you know, like a racist way particularly, but always slightly othered. So you grow up being very much independent thinker because you don't really have any other choice. And I've always think that's, you know, when I was younger, I was like, oh, this is like, it's not great. But as I got older, I think that becomes more and more useful when you genuinely just don't believe what anyone else says because you just evaluate the facts and you don't subscribe to, well, if everyone else was doing it, I would do that because that was never, you know, I was never part of the peer group as a kid, right? So then that, and you see that a lot actually in, you know, the game I'm in now where you're founder, you see a lot of people who had similar upbringings and similar perspectives. And I think in many ways, it's actually quite valuable. So I suppose it was like a combination of, you know, sort of having this slightly contrarian mindset anyway, than being in a position where you could see a lot more maybe than other people could. Actually, it's a really interesting point. And obviously I speak as someone from Ireland who's spent most of their career in England, but also someone who works a lot outside the UK. And I think this ability to see ourselves as others see it is uh, really much more important, something it would be lovely to develop further because I think, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. You describe in those early days how you jotted down some concerns and you turned them into an article for the Huffington Post. But then you say, and again I quote, the article I wrote would be seen as inflammatory and scaremongering and would have personal and professional repercussions. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's if you cast your mind back to, to Twitter, right? The world of Twitter of February 2020 was a very strange place. There was a lot of people... Uh, who knew a lot about the virus, who were looking at, you know, the data from China, the data from Italy, and very objectively saying this is quite bad. And then a lot of other people say, oh, you're just scaremongering, this isn't real, this isn't going to happen, without much factual backing to that. And I think my concern, and my, you know, it was the case, that we were very much sleepwalking when we had those weeks, and they were weeks to prepare. I mean, the, the most obvious thing that we could have done was bought a whole bunch of masks when they were cheap and available from China in those three weeks, and then we wouldn't have had quite as many exposures and deaths as we did have. So there was a you know, professional ramification for being, you know, a physician. There's, you know, you know this as well as I do, right? NHS comms can be very touchy about any association with the media and any one working at that hospital. And that actually, I think, probably is to the detriment of our country. And then personally as well, like when you're on Twitter and then you're on social media and you have a voice um, and you use it in a meaningful way, there was a lot of sort of, I guess, double guessing of your intent and say like, you know, you're just leveraging whatever knowledge plus whatever position you have as a doctor in order to grow your own following or to promote yourself. And I think that's what I meant really by the personal professionals, like people looking at that as a way of promoting yourself for other gain of, you know, for other means. But again, like, you know, it was a very controversial time and like feelings were running high and I don't really think that that was unreasonable for anybody to to look at that and have those concerns. But, you know, the truth came out in the end. So. The Twitter sphere can certainly be very cruel. And <laughs> I know a number of my colleagues and particularly women and those from ethnic minorities have had some of the most awful misogynist and racist abuse on it. Mm. A really very difficult place to be. Now, your family are clearly very important to you. Your wife, Dilson, and your children feature really quite extensively in duty of care. But you also describe 
wider circle of relatives and friends. How important is it to have a support network when you're writing on issues that some see as controversial? Yeah, I would say like how is it important to have a support network full stop and like, you know, from a biological perspective, it's, it's vital. It's probably the most useful thing that you can do in terms of longevity. But I think, again, about that ability to, to gain some perspective, like, you know, people can find themselves, you know, the sort of mental distress, moral distress on Twitter and things. And then actually, if you don't have meaningful touch points in reality, and I mean sort of meaningful connections with family or with kids, so like for me now, the only opinions that I really care about, if I'm really honest, is my wife's and my kids, right? I don't really, you know, and, and that's because what I've realized, especially over these last few years is I saw something on LinkedIn actually that really sums this up. When you're 25, you care what everybody thinks. When you're 35, which is just about where I am now, you don't care what anyone thinks. And when you're 45, you realize they never thought about you anyway. And that really sums up Twitter and actually a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of the mental distress that people put themselves through actually, no one really is thinking about you. So, you know, you just have to base your actions and your thoughts and your moral compass, I guess, on the connections. And that's why I think a lot of people live much better, more fulfilling lives by just connecting with what's tangible as opposed to the intangible. And on Twitter, block uh, liberally. Or leave Twitter like I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the things that really impresses me about you and why I wanted to have you on this series is your ability to see the bigger picture. It's an ability that I've often argued is an important attribute of public health leaders. But you're remarkably self-deprecating. And on several occasions, you've described yourself as, I quote, just a guy with Google and a napkin. The napkin obviously being something to write on. But let's take your description at face value. How did you get so many things right that others who also had access to Google and something to write on seem to have missed? And specifically, what is it about concepts like exponential growth uh, that really seem so difficult for people to grasp? How was it that you were able to understand these things and importantly to communicate them? Yeah, I think it's interesting about self-deprecation. So my first answer to you is sort of like, you know, if I had not been correct about those uh, assumptions at that time, we would not be having this conversation, right? So there's obvious survivor bias here. You know, when people, you look back and you see that all the time in lots of different uh, professions. Like you listen to a lot of people and they're like very successful. How did you do it? But actually in retrospect, it's like, well, if they weren't successful, you wouldn't be hearing them anyway, right? So that's part of that. I suppose I don't think human beings can actually do exponential growth. I think um, it's not intuitive at all. The only reason that I could think about that was because I had a napkin and I went like, okay, two, four, eight. And I was doing this safari of ward rounds of hospitals at the time. And I was seeing the numbers track up. Like we had two cases in one hospital. I came back three days later, there were four cases. Came back four days later, there was eight cases. I was like, okay, but this is very easy now to work out where this is in two weeks. And it's it's pretty bad. Like what is the, you know, what is the intervention that stops this? But even now, like we're seeing, you know, exponential increases in like AI, which is like my field at the moment. And again, people are still extrapolating linearly when actually, you know, technology and now is, is sort of taking that same curve, which is doubling in, in doing amazing things almost to what seems like on a daily basis. I suppose like from a biological perspective, people can't do it intuitively. And there's a real issue, I think, is like we've really reduced our attention span. So when we find something that we can't do intuitively, we do one or two things. We either don't try which is what the majority of people do, or we sit down with a pen and paper and we try to work it out. But not many people do that second part. And I think, again, like, you know, to go back, I've stopped using Twitter and actually one of the best decisions I ever made for my own brain because it allowed me to think, okay, I can think two, three, you know, carry on that thought process long enough to realize that I've actually hit a wall in my own intuition. I need to go and do something else. 
I do a lot of work in complex systems where you've got nonlinear relationships, path dependency, feedback loops. And when you apply that to many of the policy problems we face, it's just striking how many people struggle with that idea of the complex interrelationships. Now, many commentators have noted how people in the UK struggled to learn from experience elsewhere. I'm thinking of people like Jeremy Farrer and Jeremy Hunt, both people with family from elsewhere and who wondered why we weren't looking at what other countries were doing. Now, in your book, you describe how you were hearing stories from members of your family in Turkey and Germany. Can you say a bit more about how that helped? And as importantly, why so many other people seem to be unaware of what was happening elsewhere? Mm. I think, I mean, we have a relatively international family and always sort of have, I think, my auntie lives in Berlin and she was telling us, you know, the precautions that they were taking. But also, I think, having that interest or that insight into what people are doing on a sort of an, an emotional level in terms of what are they actually thinking like what is the vibe you know and I think that's the bit that doesn't in those kind of situations where a lot of it is intuition and you're sort of generally feeling what you know the government action is and what the people action on the ground you can kind of sort of intuit what the you know what the situations are um, and Turkey was very interesting they did some very interesting things that we would never <laughs> have constants like you know having older persons having curfews and having set times where they could come outside. Um, but it was just to to give the flavor that sort of almost like no one really knew what was going to happen. And lots of different governments were taking some pretty extreme approaches. And then you look at ours and saying, well, actually, you know, at that time, they were quite sort of almost lackadaisical. It was like, well, this seems actually out of kilter with what everybody else, at least on sort of the early you know trajectory of their policies is, is doing. Um, and that became obviously, you know, more and more apparent through not just family members, but also through connections in Italy and other countries on Twitter and things. So, yeah, that became apparent quite quickly. Well, speaking out can be difficult, but of course it's important. And in Duty of Care, you describe an episode where you were phoned with what started off as a reprimand about a tweet, but then it took a rather unusual turn. Can you tell us what happened and what lesson you drew from that experience? Yeah. So the story was, you know, I think I put up a, a tweet in my frustration I would say more than anything so just again just for context so this was just around the time that we'd gone from everything's going to be okay to like we better prepare a little bit um, and it was quite quickly became that even in the hours of preparation it was insufficient so we would go to PPE testing and they'd already run out of masks at the fit testing stage so you can imagine everyone's looking at this like well there's no mask to fit test me how is it going to be a mask when I actually have a COVID patient to look after which was the reality only a week after that so, you know, my my tweet was essentially like, this is, you know, we are very close now to, to meltdown, I think the actual words were, and we should do something. And, and again, it was kind of like this, you know, and it, I, I would say I'm older, I don't know if I'm wiser, but I'm certainly older. Um, and I kind of realized in retrospect, like, there was a lot of ability to want to do something, which fed into to my earlier point about this, having this high functioning anxiety. But what I realized from that you know, incident, which became a very productive thing. And I actually took on some extra roles. And actually that helped me feel at least that I was doing something productive was we spend a lot of our lives being outraged by things. And we think talking about it or shouting about it is helpful. And I'm not, you know, in any way saying that, you know, protest by itself in and of it is useless. It's quite the opposite. But I would say to a lot of people who, like me, who were looking for something that was purposeful doing things taking action has you know 100% filled that gap in a way that twitter and shouting and outrage never ever did and that was a really important lesson for me and that's always been what's now motivated me to action is like if i feel strongly about an issue i know now that 
talking about it and writing about it alone will not fill that gap for me. So I have to go and do something. And that was what the charity gave us and a whole bunch of other stuff I've done since. I'd like to talk a bit about your engagement with the media during the pandemic. And you describe how you'd avoided doing television until then. Of course, you've had to do quite a lot since the foundation has got going. But I wonder if you can share any tips for others Many of the uh, doctors who will be listening to this will be looking for ideas if they're going to go and engage with the wider world. Did you have media training or did you just pick up things as you went along? Um, <laughs> I guess both. I mean, I did have a 15-minute phone call with a very good colleague of mine. I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning her, Dr. Rita Issa. Um, and she gave me some media training, which was sort of, this, I can't remember now, this ABC approach, like say something that you agree you know, lay out the background and then come to the come to the problem or what your compromise is. And that was super useful because I'd never really thought of it, you know, doing a media interview in terms of that structured communication. But again, completely in line with how we're trained as physicians, right? We we follow these structures, we take a history of doing examination, even things like breaking bad news, you know, you set the scene, you make sure they check their understanding and then you go ahead and you tell them the thing and then you come back with a you know, with a follow-up and you give them space. So like we follow these structures all the time and that was actually super useful. So I would say anyone in the media or thinking about doing the media, I think the first thing you have to understand is the empathy, the motivations of the person across from you. Uh, they're looking for something inflammatory. They're looking for something sensational. They're not really thinking about the output of the purpose. So you have to be super clear about what your purpose is. And then you also have to recognize that just like any other conversation, there's a structure to it that enables you to stay in control. And I think the last point is, you know, as a physician, your words carry disproportionate um, strength in the media regardless. And that is actually quite an awesome responsibility to bear. So you have to be super careful. And I tried to be as much as I could about that responsibility. And I maybe got that wrong <laughs> a couple of times as well. You know, and I think that is sometimes that you need to think about why you're there. And if you're not there for any particular reason or purpose, maybe that's not the place for you. And I, I strongly suggest if you're going to go out as a physician in those parts, you, you know, make sure that purpose is super clear. One of the episodes that you described in your book that struck me was how in an interview with one journalist, uh, he asked you whether you were worried about the pandemic. And you say, well, I'm making a will that week. That about sums it up. And he replied, quote, that's a bit strong. Can we do it again? Can you remind us what happened after that? Yeah, so we did the interview again and it went out without that. But it, I mean, that was very interesting because I'd lived in this bubble. You know, I'm from a medical family. My wife's um, a surgeon. So I think I said it in the book, we sort of crossed that threshold of like from this isn't happening to, okay, this is happening now and this is going to be a real change for the whole country, at least for a short period of time. Whereas I went out into the world and I realized that, you know, the people holding the microphones and holding the narrative of the news had not actually crossed that threshold yet. They hadn't realized um, the magnitude of the catastrophe of the situation. And fundamentally, it was scary for everyone, journalists included. And I do remember, like, I wrote about, you know, that's a bit strong and thinking that, yeah, at the time that was a sort of, I guess, attempt to sort of control or constrain what I was trying to say. But in, in retrospect, I think I just scared them. I scared them because it may have been the first time that they heard somebody who was quite close to, to this on lots of different levels actually speak to the size of what was about to happen, which obviously was, you know, one of the largest events to ever happen in this country in a generation. Um, and, you know, that's, again, to go back to your earlier point, when you speak to journalists, just remember that they're also human beings, you know, and often experiencing an event in and of the same time that you are with the same emotions. And I think that's probably what that was. 
Now, you also describe how after one appearance that you had on Channel 4 and you, you got praise from other doctors, but also some criticism. How did that feel? And how do you cope with that situation when you are being attacked by people that you would expect to be naturally sympathetic? Yeah, I suppose the way that I thought about it at the time was, it was a very controversial time um, to say things like, we're going to run out of PPE, even though a week later it wasn't a controversial statement at all, but that was the nature of you know, exponential that changes in time period. So I think I just kind of had accepted that that would go with the territory. You know, even now I would say the worst thing that you can do if you have impact and you have speak is to have no impact in terms of, you know, complete apathy. And you might have people that really enjoy what you have to say. They might have people that we hate, but incurring a strong reaction means that that was probably worth communicating either way. And if it wasn't, you know, but I think what hit me the most and was the most like I guess soul fulfilling or this sort of shield that you know protects you if people are critical of you in, in a time when you're feeling pretty vulnerable I had quite a few people say from that actual interview I changed my behavior as a consequence of what you said and I had at least one person contact me to say that and that was sufficient you know if that one person who was actually clinically vulnerable hadn't changed their behavior you know and potentially that was something meaningfully important for their physical health or well-being then I've done my job and everything else, and I would say to this that everybody who's on Twitter and has experienced criticism or, or praise, everything else is just noise, right? Everything else. Yeah, it reminds me of the saying from my compatriot, Oscar Wilde, the one thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. <laughs> now, we've already mentioned the charity that you set up, the Healthcare Workers Foundation. Tell us a little bit about what it is. What are you trying to achieve? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I should say fully caveat that I'll tell you the whole story. But um, at the moment, um, I stepped down from the trustees and now it's run by my fellow co-founder and very good friend, Dr. Roshana Mehdi, and she's the chairwoman and doing a fantastic job. Um, yeah, so we set up the Healthcare Workers Foundation, I think, the 17th of March, which was literally the day after we started talking about lockdown and about a few days before lockdown came in, realizing that whatever efforts we were now going to make, it would be insufficient. And actually, the original impetus for the charity was, uh, and this is again to go back to how severe we thought COVID was going to be, we just assumed that a lot of our colleagues were going to die. Um, and me and my wife talked about this and thought, well, you know, well, I've got two kids at that time, got three now. Who's going to look after children of, if not ourselves, then our healthcare workers, if not other healthcare workers? So that was the that was the mission, actually, as a, from the very beginning, to protect people with PPE, to support people emotionally and mental well-being. And in the longer term, to support people um, and their children uh, who were bereaved. And I think we lost, if I remember correctly now, about 1,500 healthcare workers to COVID um, in the pandemic. It's not something we talk about enough. And many of them, and I know this because we tracked quite a few down, uh, left behind children of school age and below. And we supported them in the charity um, with a bereavement fund. The year before last, we supported at least five children at university through a scholarship fund. And that, you know, was the primary mission. The secondary mission was, you know, in the acute phase to raise a lot of money and just to get as much PP as we could. And we also realized that we did the maths. And I think the stat was to, to fully kit out the country for a month of the pandemic would cost something like nine billion pounds. So any charity could not hope to dent that in terms of disposable PPE. So we decided to create reusable PPE. We had a project to create reusable visors and we printed them with a massive 3D printing hub in South Bank. We found reusable gowns. We made reusable masks with partnerships. Um, and we did like, you know, everything that we could. And that was hugely rewarding because if you remember correctly, there was a whole bunch of hugely skilled people, 
not doing anything and wanting to help and stuck at home, right? So if I remember correctly, like I had a team of 20 at one point, you know, the chair of the charity uh, is like now an executive at UBS. Uh, the social media runs campaigns for Coca-Cola now, communications manager who works for Procter & Gamble. Like the team was phenomenal and they were doing it for nothing. And actually some of the team came from that Channel 4 interview. They phoned me up and said, I saw you in Channel 4, I want to help. So that was, you know, setting up anything is really hard. But I think setting up something where you have a clear mission and everybody you ask just says yes was super so rewarding. So I'd highly recommend, again, taking action if you want to fill that itch to do something and have impact in the world. And then I ran the charity on and off um, as chair and CEO for a couple of years. And then I formally stepped down last year now um, and Rush took over. Um, and they're still going now and providing um, financial support, actually, being one of the key measures to healthcare workers who need financial support and continuing with a lot of the bereavement and counselling stuff. Yeah, and we often overlook the number of children that were orphaned by the pandemic. Hmm. Now, when you were publicising it, you teamed up with the direct action group led by donkeys, and I guess some of the listeners will be unfamiliar with them, but they're a group of volunteers who took their name from the First World War description of soldiers in the trenches, the lions, who were led by incompetent generals or the donkeys. Now, led by donkeys have found clever ways of getting their messages across. What role do you see for direct action in promoting health-related messages? Should we be doing more of the sort of things that they do? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, I mean, I've <laughs> followed Led by Donkeys, I think, since the very beginning and been very impressed and worked with them and partially indirectly worked with them as well um, on a number of occasions. I think it's more about the conversation. There's not enough people who are willing to stand up and talk about things that actually really matter. Um, and I suppose to take meaningful ways to cut through a lot of the noise, which, you know, there's so much noise now. I think that's something that they do very, very well. They definitely cut through the noise. I remember watching the um, the line of duty thing that they made a while ago, and I thought, wow, that's so impactful in a way that is very clever and, and, and very, very useful. Um, and again, like whether it's, you know, a call to action, a protest or a direct action or, or you know, taking up selling a charity or to having actual impact in the world. I think the one thing that we all need to really do is to do something, not to say something, but to do something. And I think that's the most important action you can take. Now, again, you've described your frustration when you read uh, headline one newspaper, the Daily Telegraph saying, quote, the inflexibility of our lumbering NHS is why our country had to lock down. But in your book, you describe some incredible examples of flexibility as health workers were adapting to enormous pressures. To what extent do you think that your book, Duty of Care, can be seen as a counter, because you were writing it at the time, but a counter to the revisionism that's now being promoted in some quarters? Mm, I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, not just my account, but the whole bunch of accounts that were written at the time, it was very much like fighting a war that nobody else could see. I mean, there was so much mobilization. i give you a super good example of this. A colleague of mine was trying to move a clock in her anesthetic room for about three years, you know, writing to her state and saying, can you just move it onto that wall so we can see it and we're doing induction. And not only did that clock come down, but the wall and that entire area became like a 15-bed resource unit in three days, right, during the pandemic. And that's such a good example of you know, when a group are motivated and free to do as they need to do to respond to a singular mission, they can move incredibly fast and do incredible things. And certainly where I worked, we saw, you know, ITUs opened up overnight. We saw all sorts of incredible uh, feats from a whole bunch of human beings, not just 
consultants, but colleagues who had what were essentially nominal titles for years. And then suddenly during the pandemic, that title had real responsibility, had real weight, you know, working 16 hour shifts, not to just your own work, but to organize everybody else. And the nurses, and I think the nurses do not get enough credit. Like as doctors, we are very flexible to move to different parts of the unit. You know, moving from cardiology to ITU for me was not very much. I used to visit once or twice a week anyway. But for some of the nurses that had worked for 20 years in the cardiology unit, never even seen a ventilator to come and do ICU shifts for them, that is a hugely applauded for that sort of effort for that mission to to save lives. I think, you know, people forget that the NHS is the world's sixth largest organization and together unified and given, you know, the ability, you know, the funding and also the green light to get stuff done, can do stuff very, very, very quickly. And, you know, the people and the staff are certainly not the issue when it comes to that kind of stuff. You made the connection to uh, it being a bit like a war, but of course, during the Second World War, Churchill famously had this stamp that said, action this day, which he used very liberally. So maybe we need a modern version of that stamp. Yes, exactly. Take that war down today. That would be great. You've now moved out of clinical medicine into a new and very exciting area. Can you tell us what you're doing? Yeah. So um, after I left uh, a couple of years ago, I worked for a few years as a pharmaceutical physician. I found myself eventually as an AI healthcare academic for actually professional, again, and personal reasons, unpredictable events. And I had a PhD thesis, which I never got off the ground because COVID blew it out of the water, uh, doing applied AI in healthcare. So I sort of dusted that off, learned to code, machine learn, ran some digital trials in academia for a bit, um, and then realized that most of the application of AI in the academic space was purely for academic interest. And to the point I was at a conference and they presented this fantastically interesting model about being able to predict uh, readmission rates at 30 days in heart failure. I was like, wow, that's super interesting. You could do so much with that. You could, you know, have wet clinics and have home visits and have nurses and so many clinical interventions. And I said, oh, okay, well, it's super interesting. What, what are you doing with this? And they were like, oh, we don't know. We're data scientists. Like, so I had this thesis that AI could have tremendous impact if we could get into the right place. And then I joined an accelerator in London called Entrepreneur First, which is a, a great place for somebody like me that needs a, a sort of bed to found a company. You don't really know how to found things. And I met my co-founder there, Chris Tan, a machine learning engineer. And essentially, we're trying to build what we think is the way that healthcare will be practiced in five years' time, which is sort of co-working alongside an AI to basically do everything from your administration to your decision support to looking after patients at home and then interpreting their data and uh, you know preventing future problems. And that's been going quite well. I've been doing that for like six months. We're called Tortoise. Um, we've built a sort of product at the moment that uh, allows you to work alongside an AI that does all your administrative burden uh, and it saves you 60% time. Um, interestingly, already doubles the quality of documentation. Um, and every time I look at a letter that it's produced, I'm like, oh, that's much better than what I would have written. But every single physician I've now tested it with says the same thing. So I think the future is, I think, interesting, at least in AI, very bright for healthcare. Um, and that's sort of what we're trying to be so, sort of significant contributor to at Tortoise. And if anyone wants to come and try it, then we just get in touch. Well, watch this space. I have to say I used ChatGPT to write an abstract for a paper early this morning and it did it really rather well. So I'm I'm a convert, but there are limitations to it as for well. Sure. Yeah. It has a bad habit of making up references too, so I'm sure it'll get better. Yeah. Now, I'm, we're getting to the end and I want to close with a few personal questions. We're talking about doctors as role models, people who are inspiring for others. And I've invited you here because 
I think you're an inspiration. But who are the people that have inspired you and why? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question that I thought quite a lot about. I can think of countless colleagues, consultant colleagues that have taught me. I think I write about this in the book, right? Every doctor is sort of a, a patchwork of different physicians that you've worked with and really loved what they did. I have had loads of doctors in my time, you know, consultants from house years to registrars that have taught me different things that I sort of stuck with me. I think on a macro level, I would probably say Atul Gawande would be somebody that I've gravitated to for lots of different reasons. I mean, obviously very famous communicator, very famous book. But interestingly, I think maybe very underrated for actually his work on the WHO surgical checklist. One of the most boring and one of the most powerful uh, interventions ever in the history of medicine was just this acknowledgement that we as human beings are maybe sometimes too much on the art side as physicians and not enough on the science side. And very simple things like checklists and checking things and being very careful repeatedly and consistently saves lives. And I think that's something that I found very eye-opening in, in terms of my own practice. And now, you know, what I'm doing um, is very much aligned to the belief that AI could become the way that we make that possible at scale and, and distribute that and that certainly will become part of healthcare practice in the future. But yeah, but you know, as, as I'm always gravitating towards, you know, doctors who are also writers and communicators, I think that's sort of my, my inspiration. So yeah. And my very last question, what advice would you give to someone who has just graduated in medicine and who would like to follow in your footsteps? You know, if I look back at my career now, it's, it's pretty wild. Like I've done quite a few different things, things I never would have anticipated when I was graduating. You know, I had a very clear plan of where I wanted to be and I didn't end up anywhere near that for lots of different reasons. And I think what you would A, realize is it is a great job. Um, fundamentally, you know, the ability to apply your brain to connect with humans and to make a difference, that is a very rare and wonderful privilege. And that is something that you need to hold on to. I'd say the second thing is, if you can hold on to that through the layers of, you know, some of the worst bureaucracy and administration and really, really hard stuff that you'll have to go through, then I applaud you. And I couldn't do that. So, you know, if you can do that, then that is fantastic. But I think more fundamentally is that you just don't know what life will bring you the next day. And that's something that I, the lesson I've learned repeatedly over the last few years, professionally and personally, is that, you know, the things that really will blindside you on a random Tuesday um, are completely unpredictable. So you sort of have to just roll essentially with the punches and, you know, always just be grateful for where you are. And, you know, if, if something does happen that was very unpredictable, then just, you know, just go with it because your life will be not what you think of it. And it's what you make of it every single day that I think is uh, you know, what makes the measure of you and what makes the measure of your happiness. So just, you know, just accept the uh, unpredictable is going to be part of things and, in, you know, you can make the most of it anyway. Don Pimenta, thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Doctors, a podcast series brought to you by the BMA. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so don't forget to follow us to get notified and give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts to help others find us. You can find a link to the transcript of this episode in the show notes and at bma.org.uk slash inspiringdoctors. The interviewees on this podcast are just a selection of those who communicate medicine in fantastic ways. To join the conversation on social media and tell us about doctors whose communication skills inspired you, tag the BMA on Twitter and Instagram and use the hashtag inspiringdoctors. This podcast is hosted by Martin McKee. It is produced and edited by Alex Covey. 
This episode was researched by Martin McKee. Special thanks to our guest, Dominic Pimenta, as well as Olivia Clark, Rosie Hogwood, Gemma Hopkins, Susan Law, and Jackie Melman-Wicks. For more information, visit bma.org.uk slash inspiringdoctors.